So I once made a documentary about Sean Bradley titled Posterized. Sean is a former NBA player who's seven six, seven feet, six inches. Many thought after his career, he was a bust. He was dunked on a lot. If you were to go on YouTube, you would see him just getting dunked on over and over. He also actually was in Space Jam with Michael Jordan, the great actor, Michael Jordan. And Sean was the only player, Harvard did a study actually about this. I don't know why you'd think they'd have other things to do, but God bless them. They did a a study that showed Sean Bradley was the only player turned Monstar who in the game, in Space Jam, had zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists. Even in Space Jam, they mock Sean Bradley. So this was a 30 for 30 short film I made, and I said this actually on uh, James Andrew Miller's amazing podcast, Origins. There's a reason 30 for 30 was really the hit documentary series it became. They had the best people, really the best network bosses you could ask for. Dan Silver, Connor Shell, Bill Simmons, John Dahl, Libby Geist, uh, just to name a few. And if you're currently looking to, to hire ZipRecruiter knew uh, a few years back now that there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and then invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applicants you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners, all of you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH, as in what really happened. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew Jenks. And on Sunday, April 8th at the Abrams Art Center Playhouse Theater on Grand Street in New York City, I'll be doing a special live podcast episode. It'll be a combination of photos and videos along with one of the episodes from the first season. I've been preparing for this, really looking forward to it, working hard on doing it live. You can get tickets uh, right now. They're on sale. I made the website easier because it was a very complicated website. You go to tinyurl.com backslash Pod. Again, it's Sunday, April 8th in New York, New York. Live podcast of what really happened. Tinyurl.com backslash JanksLivePod. Welcome to a reaction episode of What Really Happened, which is produced by Cadence 13, Seven Bucks Productions, Brian Gewertz, Danny Garcia, and my workout partner and all-around hero slash boss, Dwayne Johnson. This is written, hosted by yours truly, Andrew, or as my friends simply call me, Jenks. Follow me at Andrew Jenks on Twitter or Instagram. And please, if you can do me a favor, and if you obviously like this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and uh, leave a comment, if it's a good comment. 
uh, it really does actually make a big, big difference. Also, I obviously want to thank everyone for listening to season one, uh, our first six original episodes, helping make us the number one podcast for a solid period of time on the Apple podcast charts. So our Princess Diana episode, A Royal Legacy, which you can obviously find by subscribing, focused on the 20-year anniversary of Princess Diana's death and the specials and documentaries produced and aired to commemorate her passing. Several of these purported to have new insight and information. So after the dust settled and they had all aired, I, as you know, watched nearly all of them and realized, which I was surprised by at first, that there really wasn't anything more than stale recreations and silly sound bites that sounded good but carried little weight. There were a few exceptions, but by and large, the public was played. TV executives were trying to get ratings and making money off of her death. I attempted in the end to have a podcast that featured not just how revolutionary Princess Diana was, but the humanitarian she really became and the profound influence she had on her children. For this reaction episode to A Royal Legacy, I'm thinking that rather than harping on the documentaries made to quote-unquote commemorate the 20-year anniversary of her death, I'd interview two of the authors that wrote the books on Princess Diana, specifically two authors that could speak to Diana the person, showing that history is oftentimes written by those who we least expect. Of course, I'll also include comments and feedback from our listeners. One of the authors is Andrew Morton. His book, Wallace in Love, about the Duchess of Windsor and the Duke of Windsor, it's currently out. He's been well-chronicled, so let me be clear. Unlike the documentaries out there more recently, I'm not claiming my interview with him is groundbreaking, but I find it endlessly interesting. He wrote, Diana, Her True Story. Although, as he revealed years later, he essentially co-wrote the book with Princess Diana. When his book first came out, which I'll soon talk about, in 1992, the public couldn't believe what they were reading, and the royals went berserk. The book revealed to the world that the prince and princess were not in an ideal marriage, and in reality, in a marriage that was hardly surviving. Fellow journalists claimed that Morton's book was scum and it should be banned. In fact, many bookstores did exactly that. Palace historians said the book led to an outbreak of mayhem behind palace gates that hadn't existed since the abdication. Morton received serious death threats. It was not until Diana died in 1997 that Morton revealed his source was in fact Diana. To be transparent, Andrew Morton was in several of those specials and documentaries that aired in 2017 meant to commemorate Diana's death, and he did make them more legitimate. It's certainly not his fault that so many of them kind of sucked. But what did seem to happen is that Morton got used to cliche one-liners that are perfect for cheesy TV. When I interviewed him, it was hard to get past this. Um, you know, she was a woman in full, as it were. Yeah. And uh, the tragedy is the light at the end of her own tunnel was the light uh, you know, the, the, the lights of the paparazzi flash bulbs. After some research, knowing this couldn't have been the first time he dropped that line, I saw that Morton uses this exact phrase, end of the tunnel thing, in many of the documentaries and interviews with the New York Post, Huffington Post, Nat Geo, you name it. 
Regardless, Morton's story is vital and one of the rare books in history that, well, changed history. The second author that I speak with is legendary Tina Brown. She is also in two of the specials that I can't stop talking about. And as you'll hear, I tell her my thoughts. Brown is the former editor of Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and most recently, she's the founder of the Women in the World Summit, which in many ways was way ahead of its time, and the author of The Diana Chronicles, in which she interviewed over 250 people who knew Diana, world leaders such as Tony Blair. And then Tina also captures her own experiences with Diana, including a lunch Tina had with Diana only weeks before her death. She came to the United States to auction her dresses at uh, Christie's Mm -hmm. for AIDS on behalf of AIDS. And uh, so we had lunch at the Four Seasons. We were were actually, it was me and Anna Winter together had Mm -hmm. lunch with her at the Four Seasons restaurant. And I hadn't really seen her up close for some years. So first off, before anything, 30 seconds of corrections from listeners. On Twitter, it was pointed out to me that I said England once when I meant to say the United Kingdom. They are obviously different. I also said that Paul Burrell was on Dancing with the Stars, when in fact, he was on other shows I listed. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, Big Brother, and many others. Clearly, no matter how small or big, I rely on our listeners for feedback and telling me if a fact or story is inaccurate. And I really do thank you for keeping me in check. We also seek feedback via my Twitter at Andrew Jenks or on our phone line and message board, which is at jenkspod.com. So unlike a lot of really the other episodes, the the feedback that I got in this specific episode was an outpouring from listeners about really your love for Princess Diana. And a lot of times it, it came it came through to me at least as a really profound love. Um, and there wasn't, you know, as, as you've seen with other episodes, reaction episodes, we've gotten calls that are helping us correct certain facts or taking issue with different points I make, uh, which I very much appreciate. In this episode, we got a few calls that were really uh, almost just someone expressing, uh, how much they enjoyed the episode and and didn't really even comment from there, uh, this one being a good example. Yeah, I I just finished listening to your podcast about Princess Diana. Um, It was very touching. She was was alive and I was a grown man and I always remember thinking that she was, uh, you know, she was a special person. And and, uh, I I thought that the way that you did this was, you know, very nice, very good and and, and certainly clear that, uh, you know, that she was a good mother to her children and she tried to be a good person despite all the, the nonsense. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very heartfelt. And then I also found, uh, saw a few on Twitter. I mean, there were quite a few on Twitter, and I just want to read a few. Uh, most of them are from this past December. And just, again, uh, this one was from Karen Wolf. My goodness, I don't think I've ever teared up so much during a podcast. Hearing Princess Diana's son speak of their memories of her is quite powerful. A lot of you uh, sent over some quotes that she had said through the years. This from from R. Buya, who uh, quoted her saying, I'm not a political animal, but I think the biggest disease this world suffers from in this day and age is the disease of being unloved. Uh, and this really goes on and on. 
And of course, this isn't really a way of me saying what a great podcast we had. Um, although I guess I could do that over drinks if anyone wants to sometime. Uh, it was just like this, This out, again, I, I'll say it one last time, this, this outpouring. Uh, the last one I, I wanted to bring in here was from Deb, who is at Make Changes For Me, uh, that said, as an American teenage girl in the 80s who loved Diana Spencer before she became a princess, I was turned off by the tributes to her this summer. This podcast was very well done and very respectful for her memory. I thank you for doing her story justice. And uh, that was definitely the point of the podcast was I did think, as I say to Tina Brown, quite bluntly coming up, that I really disliked, disrespected uh, the specials that were out there. It felt like they were taking advantage of Princess Diana, but rather than dwelling on that, we uh, did our own kind of special in tribute and I think served the uh, really groundbreaking woman the uh, the justice that she deserves and that clearly so many of you responded to. And so that that was nice to end on an episode where everything was very, very positive. So Andrew Morton, he is a charming guy. While he and I BS about weather, as all conversations seem to start with weather, he literally says he is happy that I am cold in New York City. And you live in California, huh? Yeah, well, my wife is American, so I live part of the time in Pasadena, so I'm enjoying the sunshine. Yeah, I bet. It's freezing cold in New York. Oh, is it? Oh, good. I always love it when people say that. <laughs> All right. We always used to say on the royal thing, their despair is our delight. Right, right. <laughs> and there I am, laughing, telling him how funny he is. That is some solid charm game. Morton worked for years with three London tabloids, The Daily Star, News of the World, and Daily Mail until 1987. Diana got to know many, if not most, of the reporters that would cover her on a daily basis, including Morton. In fact, there's a pretty well-known story in which his tie wasn't straight, and she approached him and fixed it. To put this in context, prior to Diana, journalists could never speak to the royals. Never. Unless, on the off chance, the royals spoke to them first. And now, here's a princess touching a commoner? Fixing a man's tie? Total blasphemy. Coverage from serious publications always remained the same until Andrew Morton. The royals are near perfect. When rereading parts of his book, it became obvious to me that there's something about Morton that makes him a bit of an underdog. You said, I don't speak with a plum in my mouth, uh, that you didn't maybe necessarily go to a, a, a higher end school than, than others. Well, I think that what happened when, when the book came out was that it showed the British class system red in tooth and claw. And I went to what's called a red brick university college, as opposed to Oxford or Cambridge. I was from the north of England, as opposed to uh, someone who was educated in private schools in the home counties. So there was a kind of a bafflement. How did he get this story from a bunch of basically young aristos? Or aristocrats, and so it, it, it brought out that kind of um, uh, class-based uh, uh, attitude, which is very much part of British society. That's incredible. And was that was that talked about, or was it more of a sub, uh, more of an underbelly element? 
Well, I think I think that you know the, the class is is the equivalent in Britain to what race is in America. Hmm. Um, uh, that you can you can tell an awful lot about a man in Britain by the, by the kind of shoes he wears. So there's all kinds of tells and delineations, and the fact that I was from a place called Leeds in the north of England, as opposed to you know the leafy suburbs of of um, the home counties, counted against me. And I'd, and in a funny kind of way, I'd anticipated all that. In 1986, Princess Diana meets with Dr. James Colthurst for a visit at St. Thomas's Hospital in central London. She isn't there for a checkup, but instead a celebration of the opening of a new CT scanner. Afterwards, she has tea and biscuits with Dr. Colthurst. Morton notes this. He realizes the doc has known Diana for quite a few years. In October of 86, you see that they, he and, and Princess Diana have a friendly relationship. And so you decide to kind of get to know him more. You have lunch with him. You're playing at, a, I think, a local sports club of some sort. Or a, yeah, yeah, that's right. Is that something that, Andrew, you do often when, with, you know, to develop relationships? Um, was that more of like something you saw specifically? Do you, I mean, are you having lunch with, I mean... You'd be having lunch with hundreds of people, I would assume. Of <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. I mean, uh, you, you do build up contacts. And often, it's, as a journalist and also as a writer, you build up contacts. But they're usually people that you, quite, that you like. I mean, James and I are great friends to this day. I oh, mean, wow. you know, we're very good friends. Using the doctor as an informant of sorts, Morton begins writing fairly benign books about the royal kingdom, including Theirs is the Kingdom inside Kensington Palace, and Diana's Diary. They do have nice photos. Seriously, they have some really nice photos. Then comes early 1991. Rumors are circulating within the media that there's some sort of friction between the prince and princess. It becomes hard to ignore, but nobody will go on the record. So it remains unreported at the time. Meanwhile, Diana is led to believe that Camilla and Charles are continuing an affair. Diana asks around, mostly behind palace gates, but the royals dismiss this. They say she's crazy. And then articles begin appearing criticizing Diana for infidelity. And she is rightfully concerned that these articles are coming from her husband, from Charles himself, or really his people. Without Morton having any idea, Diana begins, as Morton puts it, testing him out. Diana desperately wants her narrative, her real life inside the palace, her side of the story told, and she wants it told in a big way. Through the doctor, Diana tells Morton about a private secretary that Charles had fired, hinting that there are issues in Charles's camp. Diana is happy with how Morton's article turns out. So as the months go on, Charles's camp is relentless in putting out story after story that paint Diana in a terrible light. And so Morton opts on his own to write articles painting Diana in a good light and Charles as the bad guy. The palace becomes skeptical. Where is Morton getting this information? Because it is accurate. So Morton's office is broken into, a camera taken, notebooks stolen, but... Dr. Colthurst always kept the tapes that Morton would listen to when getting information. 
Diana, pleased with the articles, asks the doctor about Diana doing an interview with Morton. But the royal family doing any sort of interview with the press remained unheard of. Still, most will do just about anything when trapped in a corner. In order to do the interview, Morton can't go to the palace. He's a known royal reporter, not to mention he's 6'4". So the doctor gets written questions from Morton, rides his bicycle to Kensington Palace, and asks Morton's questions, Diana responding into a small recorder. Afterwards, Dr. Colthurst and Morton meet at a grungy cafe. The doctor takes the tape out, Morton puts on headphones, and listens. He can't believe he is hearing Diana, seemingly the perfect person with a perfect life, talking about suicide attempts, eating disorders, and marital issues. Morton is allowed to jot some notes, but can never take the tapes. He leaves with this huge secret, but knows he can't publish it. Diana wouldn't be able to say it came from her, and thus it would be Morton's word versus the palace. So Morton thought maybe it'd be best if he wrote this as a book. And in order to do this, he interviews as many people as he can in Diana's inner circle to demonstrate this possible book is from real sources. After the book's release, he has Diana see these friends, knowing it would be photographed, to show these sources were still friendly with Diana, and not some old rumors from friends who Diana hadn't spoken with in years. But then, Morton also needed a publisher. Most turned him down. The proof just wasn't enough. And so then, Diana comes through again. Through the doctor, she shows Morton Camilla's love letters to Prince Charles. You would think this is enough, but it still wasn't. A libel lawyer tells Morton and his now publisher that it's not enough because it'd be Morton's word versus Prince Charles. This brings up an interesting difference in libel law between here in the United States versus the United Kingdom. I think you said that they're uh, informed by a, a leading libel lawyer under strict British law, the fact that uh, you know something to be true does not allow you to say it? Yes, that's absolutely the case. I mean, um, my book on uh, Tom Cruise and his relationship with the Church of Scientology Mm -hmm. was not published in Britain because of Britain's libel laws. Similarly, um, uh, any publisher in Britain who was interested in publishing my book, Angelina Jolie, said, well... Um, you know, she might decide to sue, in which case uh, we, we, we're not interested. So British libel law, as it pertains to anybody, whether it be a member of the royal family uh, or, you know, just a man in the street, uh, is very rigorous and it is it's very unlike the American system where there is freedom of expression. And uh, given the assaults these days on the American uh, first estate or the fourth estate rather and um and on freedom of expression i think it should be cherished and um uh you know defended um because you don't want to end up like with the kind of laws that we have in britain where uh britain is a world center for what's called libel tourism mm. where somebody could have one book brought into britain and then they can use britain's um uh, uh, draconian libel laws mm. to uh, sue. Um, the difference is American 
there's a presumption of uh, of freedom of expression in America, where there's a presumption of of, of, uh, privacy in Britain. As Morton and his publisher are attempting to get around these laws, one libel lawyer comes up with what I think is an incredibly creative idea. He tells them not to write in the book that Camilla and Charles are having an affair, but instead a, quote, secret friendship. Readers would know what this means, but the words weren't strong enough for the royals to get the book off the shelves. God, I love creative lawyers. This also allows for when the book comes out for Diana to say no whenever asked if she spoke with Morton for the book. According to Morton, early on in a recorded conversation between the doctor and Diana, the doctor tells Diana to let him know if any questions are out of bounds. Diana says, no, no, it's okay. She was prepared to let it all out. You talk in your book about being, uh, I think the word is relieved that she approved of a section of the book. I don't think you meant it approved as in like she approved that it was okay, but that she found it um, moving uh, and that it was doing the story justice. Was there any pressure that you felt um, that you had to please her in all of this? Well, she actually read the book, uh, the manuscript, before it came out. And we, we wanted that because this is such a high-profile book. We are, you know, and she was the main character in it, obviously, mm-hmm. Diana, her true story. And the, the, the fact is, we didn't want her saying, no, that, uh, this isn't me. This is a, you know, and so that she would disown it. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to be behind the book, even in a silent mute way um and she uh, one of the things which struck me was her was her courage the fact that she was prepared to you know let the whole thing go she made a couple of minor minor alterations to the manuscript and that was it um uh the the and 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 the book went ahead and yes and she she read one chapter and she brought back a lot of painful memories for from her for her and she started crying so it you know, in a way, that was for me job done. Um, but also, it meant that when the book came out, it had to be seen to be authentic and to be true. And that was that was my the difficulty that I faced for the next few years. For years, years, up until very recently, I'm talking really, really like really recently. I had a very simple diet. I'd go to sleep eating pancakes, like on on the bed eating pancakes syrup like i'm not this isn't me trying to be funny it's more of sheer disgust syrup oozing down my chest i'd wake up and i'd eat the leftover pancakes then i'd have some chicken fingers usually with barbecue sauce but not against honey mustard Um, then for lunch i'd have some more chicken fingers pizza around 6 p.m and then uh this ice cream that for some reason stephen colbert was on like the cover of it I think it was called American Drone or something. Um, And then after that, I would order some pancakes and fall asleep and the cycle would start all over again. If you don't believe me, um, well, you don't. I can't can't really prove it unless I could put you in touch with the MTV crew from back in the day. uh, But then we're just all wasting our time. So take my word. If you're thinking of eating healthier, you could follow this particular route. Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes 
to your door that can be cooked in under 45 minutes. The menu changes every week based on what's in season and is designed by Blue Apron's in-house culinary team. Culinary team. It just sounds so fancy, which is so cool. Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week, and customers can pick two, three, even four recipes based on what best fits your schedule. And for those of you that, and I'm not mocking you, if you're you know against GMO ingredients, if you want meat with no added hormones, all these things that actually make perfect sense, Blue Apron does that. Blue Apron is treating what really happened, listeners, all of y'all, to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash WRH. Wow, $30 off. That's, I, that's, wow, okay. I see you. I see you, Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash WRH. That's blueapron.com slash WRH. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The book is about to come out. Pre-sales don't look good. Most of the mainstream press still consider this whole book a silly tell-all by an author and his quote-unquote sources that don't know much. But on June 16th, 1992, Morton's book hits the shelves. The publisher had ordered 50,000 copies, secretly printed in Finland. All 50,000 were gone within hours. The book becomes a sensation. And in turn, Andrew Morton becomes a household name in the United Kingdom, not England. Within two months, two million copies are sold in 20 different languages. However, despite the book becoming an international sensation, the press remains skeptical of where all this information is coming from. And many still consider Morton nothing but a scam artist, a writer seeking fame and fortune. What added a layer of difficulty for Morton was that all of his information would have had to come from Princess Diana. And it was vital that he says this was not the case. Well, when the book came out, um, it was, you know, you really did face the British establishment red in tooth and claw. And, and they were, they, you know, they were um, denigrating me as an individual, me as a journalist, my writing ability, every single thing you can think of in order to traduce the, the story inside the book. And my job was to just try and defend it. But I, I couldn't say that Diana's behind the book. Right. Yeah, those first few, few days were very high pressure, uh, very intense. And, you know, various members of parliament said, said that I should be sent to the Tower of London. Uh, some said that I should be horse whipped. I mean... Uh, the chairman of the Press Complaints Council said that you shouldn't dabble in the stuff of people's souls. Um, various newspaper editors said that you know if you if you uh, didn't make it as a royal writer, you went you, you were you worked as a, a brothel a pianist in a brothel. Mm. You know, so <laughs> it was all pretty uh, full-on stuff. But the the one thing that I just did was keep saying the same old thing that the the book was accurate that there was no that there had been no um, uh, attacks on me from Buckingham Palace and people then gradually started to realise that there must be some truth in the book and then the very fact that the prince and princess were you know weren't in the same county as one another let alone the same picture. And then they, when they went to Seoul in North Korea, 
on a visit there in the autumn of uh, 1992, the, the headlines were the glums. So everybody knew that the writing was on the wall. Then, of course, when they separated in December 1992, six months after the publication of the book, there was some there was some questioning saying was the book responsible, but then but actually people were then realising that actually the book was authentic and, and accurate, even though it's from her, uh, very much from her point of view. Yeah. Morton's experience reminds me of the experience many authors have when relying on sources that they can't reveal. Just think of Sam Smith, who I featured in our podcast episode, No, Thank You, Sam. When Smith wrote his book, The Jordan Rules, it showed Jordan as not the perfect human. And other journalists, players, and fans declared that Sam's book would lead to the destruction of Jordan and the Bulls. Of course, this didn't happen. And in time, most everyone has reversed course and said Smith's book is an incredible insight into what was really happening in Jordan's life, just as he won his first NBA championship. But Smith and Morton, in my opinion, took a similar approach with the hysteria their books caused. They would do the press to talk about the book, but other than that, both would keep their head down and stick to one primary line. Their sources were legitimate and their information all factual. When Princess Diana died in 1997, Morton did something he couldn't have imagined at first. And it was only after her death in 1997 that I, I said... Uh, that she was behind it. And quite frankly, if she was alive today, I'd still be saying to you, oh no, she didn't tell me, but her friends and family did. He knew and believes Diana would agree that since she wouldn't face repercussions, the book should go down in history as something that did in fact come from her. When she did pass away, Morton was obviously sad, but I was surprised by this. Yeah, it was, it's, for me, actually, I was bitterly upset and angry because I knew, having been inside the story, as it were, that Diana had made great strides, and this is back to where we start off, this, the feminist aspect of her life, that she had you know, broken free of the royal family, broken free of her husband. It took incredible courage in the first place to do that. Um, and then she tried to make. She spent several years trying to make sense of her life and trying to be a woman in her own right. And we saw her becoming a woman in her own right. I mean, you don't need me to tell you. Morton is referring to all of the work Diana was not just doing for the disenfranchised, but work that she was really enjoying. She was making a difference. 1997 could have been a breakthrough year. And it's not just Morton who thinks this. That summer in 1997... Diana had lunch with Tina Brown, editor of Vanity Fair at the time. We got lucky because Tina is on a press tour with her new book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983-1992, to an interesting, fun, and quick read, an incredible look into the world of a young magazine editor sorting out life in the competitive New York market in the 1980s. I talked with Tina for nearly an hour, and for the intentions of this episode, focused mostly on Tina's 1992 book, The Diana Chronicles, in which she interviewed over 250 people who knew Diana, world leaders such as Tony Blair, and then also captures her own personal experiences with Diana. Here's the part that makes it all the more incredible. Brown also interviews Lord Stevens, 
a former commissioner at the Metropolitan Police, which helped publish the Operation Paget Inquiry. Brown also walked through that tunnel in which Diana was killed with a former senior reporter and war reporter whose book in 2006 detailed and analyzed the French investigation. She also spoke with a reporter that I speak a lot about in our first podcast episode, Martin Gregory, and a long list of others. Perhaps most interesting was Tina's personal conversations with Diana. I was curious if you remember what that conversation was like and uh, what it was like, where you felt like she was at that time in her life. Well, that was in uh, July 1997, or June, rather, 1997, of course, which was only two months before she died. That's what I, yeah, right. And she came to the United States to auction her dresses at uh, Christie's Mm -hmm. for AIDS, on behalf of AIDS. And uh, so we had lunch at the Four Seasons. We were were actually, it was me and Anna Winter together, had Mm -hmm. lunch with her at the Four Seasons restaurant. And I hadn't really seen her up close for some years. You know, I had I had known Diana since she was engaged to Charles in 1981. And, you know, she at that point was this shy, you know, gazelle-like girl who was just so, uh, such a child, really. You know, she was only 19. And I'd seen her off and on since. But then when she arrives at the restaurant in 1997, I mean, she is this unbelievable world-class celebrity at this point. I mean, there's just such a radiation of charisma around her. She's always one of the things that people forget about Diana, which was very tall, really tall. I mean, extraordinarily tall. Mm-hmm. So that when she walked into a room, particularly when she was on high heels, you know, she was this staggeringly high sort of Barbarella presence, you know, and uh, with this amazing skin. I mean, she was much, much more beautiful in real life, actually, than she was in her pictures. Wow. Because what you didn't see in the pictures was this kind of velvety peach colored complexion. And okay her eyes that were these huge kind of limpid pools of, of feeling and empathy. You know, she had these huge eyes, big blue eyes and, the, and this amazing skin. So she was ravishingly beautiful woman, actually. And what was great about her and, and, and touching, in a sense, was that there were no boundaries with Diana. I mean, you know, she would just plunge right in and you were instantly on the serious stuff, if you like. And, uh, I mean, she started by sort of talking a lot about how pleased and passionately uh, sort of fulfilled she was, if you like, by a lot of her humanitarian campaigns. She'd just been in the middle of her landmine campaign, you know, Mm. when she was campaigning against landmines. And subsequently, actually, she did this incredibly brave thing of walking across an unexploded minefield, which Mm. I think people forget is something she did. She didn't just do it once, by the way. She did it twice because the press didn't get the picture the first time. And so she was talking about her campaign and that was all great. But then she kind of began to talk about her summer ahead, you know, and she said, you know, I'm really dreading August. She said, you know, because she said the boys, uh, you know, William and Harry, should they go off to Balmoral to stay with Charles, with their father? And she said, I'm left on my own in London. I said, so, well, surely, you know, you've got plenty of people you can stay with and so on. She said, well, you know, people don't really like asking me to stay because she said they, you know, they, they might like me, but it's hell having me to stay. She said, it's the press calm. They go through the trash cans. They... You know, I'm, they're, they're beleaguered by paparazzi. Nobody wants that on their summer vacation. She said, so I, I'm not somebody people really want to stay. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. So should I just want to be safe. I just want to be private. And I don't know there's anyone who can offer me that because it's too difficult. So the whole thing was a grotesque and sad irony, the whole thing. When you say she said that while, uh, while you were having 
lunch at the four was it lunch yes. at the four seasons what do you think her reasons in that moment were for saying that well that was always the question with diana i mean diana always had one ear to her own imagery let's face it um she was always uh enlisting support um always enlisting people to listen to her point of view uh she saw me as, at that time i was editor of the new yorker magazine so she saw that as a powerful outlet. I'm sure she saw Anna as editor of Vogue as a mm -hmm. powerful outlet. And she wanted to make sure that her side of the story mm. was being told. I think she was trying to define to two other women of influence uh, her new direction. You know, she wanted to say, I'm now mounting a new direction. I, she did say to me she had exciting projects that she would soon announce. I think she was referring to documentary films. I think she decided she wanted to do that, to do, sort of spend more time actually using her her huge publicity and fame to uh, create movies and television presence and so on for, for her humanitarian ideas. So I think that's what she had in mind. So she was sort of tentatively feeling her way towards some kind of relaunch of Diana Point too. you know. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. You, you point out in the book how she may have started some version of her own Clinton Global Initiative mm -hmm. and this idea of uh, I think you, it was like a documentary every two years or so, mm -hmm. uh, which are all forward-thinking concepts. Well, she was very cutting edge. I mean, yeah. let's face it, Diana, first of all, she was cutting edge about the use of her celebrity, which everyone has copied since. I mean, yeah. she was really the CGI, Clinton Global Initiative before that. She really mm -hmm. was sort of Bono before Bono, right? right? And Angelina before Angelina, you know? Yeah. And they've all, in a way, looked at what she's done and, and taken a leaf out of that book. Um, but she also was really, you know, ahead of the curve with the way she wanted to open up the royal family to modernity. And what you're seeing today with Meghan Markle is very much, uh, you know, Diana's, you know, creation in a sense. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Meghan is following again the footsteps of Diana. The fact that she has stated that she wants to be, you know, involved with humanitarian things, that is pure Diana. Mm. The fact that Prince Harry wanted that kind of wife is is pure diana you know she she wanted that kind of a, fa a royal family ones that would use their absolute their supersonic charms as it were to uh conquer the world for good yeah. and that's what the boys have become yeah both of them i remember when um when uh william walked out and drove the car you know with uh when he first left the hospital and everyone was oh my god he drove uh in terms of the anniversary of her death this past august uh, there were a lot of specials and programs and documentaries. And I noticed, and I'm there were probably more in the one I saw, I think all of them, most of them, many of them. And you were uh, in two that I had seen anyway. I was wondering, one being uh, seven days, the days after her, her death, that uh, I think it was a BBC production, but it's on Netflix here in America. And then the other one was 100 Days, which was the Martin Bashir one that was on uh, ABC. Uh, how did you go about deciding to be in which specials well, or documentaries? To be honest, I, I mean, I was asked by everyone. That's, what, I'm, that's what I mean, yeah. I mean, it was sometimes it was just about the nature of the outlet. I mean, you know, with, do they sound um, reputable? I did I did one for ABC. They maybe asked me first. I didn't want to do too many only because there's a limit to how many you can do. But I wanted to do some of them only because I think it was important to mark her anniversary, actually. Mm -hmm. I think she's going to become more and more of an important figure. 
particularly as the boys age, because um, as when the queen dies and all of that whole pain, as it were, around what happened in the divorce and the bad feeling and so on, it's already beginning to fade. But the boys, it's their mother, you know, so they are going to want to keep celebrating Diana probably more and more as the year goes by. And I felt like they, again, just my opinion, that they did a really nice job of that in the HBO documentary. Uh, I thought the Netflix or BBC Seven Days was tastefully done. I found A Hundred Days uh, all and all of the others just such crap, like just <laughs> empty uh, interviews that sounded really dramatic with this cheesy music. I'm and, sure that's true. There's been so much cheesiness around poor Diana, who was the woman who, you know, who had so much taste and sensitivity. It's horrible. I haven't seen any of them, actually. I really I didn't want to see any of them particularly. I mean, the story's just so full of nuance that there is just no way it can be done in that kind of crude and cheesy way and capture anything that was real. Right. Because, you know, it was a story that was full of nuance. I mean, it's like there's a tendency to make the royal family demonized, for mm -hmm. instance. And, you know, Charles has, has his own poignant story. I mean, this mm -hmm. is a guy who was, you know, who had very little sort of childhood warmth, really. You know, he had a very stiff upbringing. His mother, at one point, the queen, went away for five months on a tour. And when she came back, he had to shake her hand gravely in front of uh, the whole British nation. I mean, this was a, quite a lot of pain. And then he went through this ter terrible... Uh, boarding school existence, right. in, in, which actually is just the subject of the new series of The Crown. I, I watched which is, that episode. Uh, the Netflix yeah. series, The Crown episode, the second series has uh, a whole episode on poor Charles's school days at that yeah. hideous school, Gordonston, which yeah. was just absolutely the most brutal bullying environment that any young sensitive man could have had. So he had a very sad childhood too. Mm. And, you know, he was in love with Camilla Parker Bowles. So, I mean, in a way, you know, he was kind of bullied into getting married. And the tragedy for Diana was is that it was sort of an arranged marriage and everybody knew it but her. Right. That was the, that was it. I mean, she was sort of fanny by gaslight in that sense. You know, she she didn't realize. I mean, she was in love with a – she was only 19, 20. She was in love with this romantic idea of the royal uh, heir to the throne. She only met him, I think, 13 times it was before they actually got married. And, you know, everybody in the royal family thought he was a wonderful match because of everything except who she was, in a sense, really underneath. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was being asked to play a part, but she thought she was in love and having a love affair. So it was tragic, really, what happened to everybody involved. Yeah. And, of course, I really thought about that very strongly. And she also, by the way, said how much she still wished she was married to Charles. And I was astonished by that. You know, she said that she she still regretted it. And I was very surprised because by that point, she, of course, she was divorced. And I almost got the feeling that, you know, if she was offered a chance, she would go back with Charles, actually. Um, and interestingly enough, when I started writing my book later uh, in 2006, which was published in 2007, I wrote a biography of her, the Diana Chronicles. Of course. Um, I, 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 I actually, in the course of my reporting, you know, discovered there was quite a lot of evidence that really they were beginning to really understand each other and might possibly have got back together at some point because ultimately the woman she had become at the age 36 was much more the kind of woman that Charles mm. really would have genuinely liked because, you know, she was a child when she met this husband who was 12 years older and he was like a man 25 years older. You know, he was very stiff, very, very old-fashioned, very quirky, very self-centered. But, you know, as a woman of 36, Diana had been through her own traumas by that time. She had become a genuinely 
effective humanitarian uh, and had much really more in common with Charles than she had with a lot of other people because, you know, he was the only other person who knew what it was like to be royal. And he was really a person who had a lot of humanitarian interests himself. So the tragedy is, is that she wasn't that woman when he met her. Um, but of course it was too late. So I'm obsessed with this one particular king, King John II of France, otherwise known as King John the Good. Uh, definitely an episode for season two on him, which I'm working on. Uh, by the way, if you go to my Twitter, at Andrew Jenks, and let me know of any ideas you have. I've gotten at least, I don't know, a couple dozen or so uh, from different listeners who've reached out with some great ideas. But uh, with John the Good, I realized there are no documentaries about him, movies, TV episodes. Uh, there were no books until one came out very recently. Just just one book, which is makes it all the more exciting for, for season two. And I got 15% off of this uh, recent order because Honey told me to use a promo code that I got for Barnes & Noble. Uh, what is Honey? Well... You never turn down free money, right? I, I, I don't think so. And if you shop online without the best coupons, you're already paying too much. Very logical. Fortunately, there's a free browser extension called Honey that automatically finds the best coupons on the web, so you always get the best prices on everything online. In two clicks, add Honey to any browser for free, then shop like you normally do. Honey scans and tests millions of coupons in the background. At checkout, Honey will automatically apply the best coupon to get you the biggest discount. Over 7 million people use Honey every day, and together, they've saved millions of dollars. So there's no reason not to add Honey to your browser today. It's free. Just takes seconds to install, and will save you tons of money. Add Honey to your browser for free right now at, and this is key, joinhoney.com slash WRH. That's joinhoney.com slash WRH. Joinhoney.com slash WRH. You know, I don't know if this will result in a question, but I did love in terms of uh, uh, what you were saying about uh, Charles uh, when, he, when he gives the famous interview about what is the first interview after they get, uh, is it engaged or married? What, you know, what is love? And you say how he's complicated and he was kind of giving the cinema verite answer. Mm -hmm. I just, for whatever it's worth, Tina Brown, I loved, I love that way of, uh, <laughs> I love that way of putting it. Um, you say in the book, it's hard to believe it Diana, I think Diana, correct me if I'm wrong. Diana tells you that it's hard to believe that she and Charles had Harry, but that they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. I, I do believe Harry is, is uh, Charles's son. Mm -hmm. and Because the know. photos, I hate conspiracy theories. I think some, I'm sorry to cut you off. So much of it is, uh, as you are Lady Evans, uh, <laughs> so much of it is, um, I also don't, I, also a part of me doesn't know if, if it's any of my business to like, who gives a shit? Like it's, you know, he's, he's, a, he seems like an amazing guy and he's Invictus games and the whole nine yards. Is there any kind of, uh, I don't know. Do you have any moral qualms with even this sort of thing? Well, People no, I actually, I explored it quite deeply when I was writing my book, the Diana Chronicles. And, um, 
uh, actually all my things, feelings about Harry were sort of put to bed when I went to uh, Althorpe House, Diana's ancient uh, stately home, yeah. and saw all the photographs of her ancestors who all look like Harry, which put put to bed in a sense the sense that, oh, he has such redhead coloring and he right. doesn't look anything like Prince Charles, or her right. family look like that. Right. And there's a lot of uh, aspects of Harry which look very much like Prince Philip, I think, when you, you know, the whole, he, a lot of his mannerisms and demeanor they do look alike. I have no doubt that he's uh, Charles's son. I, I think, uh, and, and furthermore, the, aside from the physical characteristics, the timing really doesn't match up with um, mm-hmm. uh, James Hewitt, who has often been thought of as the father. His appearance in her life, you know, it just the time, the timing doesn't match up for when he appeared and when that child appeared. It's funny how whenever they people talk about how um, they didn't have Harry that. It's a good example of people just losing sight of any sort of context or uh, or asking like the next uh, follow-up question, which is, well, what was Diana's side like? Did they have red hair? You know, yeah, it's just I like, know, know. it's a pretty... Um, well, I mean, they had a very, very estranged marriage at that time. And when she said, I don't know how we had Harry, she, right. I mean, they weren't sleeping together much, but they right. clearly slept together enough to produce Harry. Speaking of sex, women who love horses love sex? <laughs> Is that true? Because if so, I'm going to start hanging around. I didn't. Well, they're often lusty women. Okay. They're lusty physical women, and and Note certainly that down. a lot of those uh, upper class women who used to ride out with Charles were certainly lusty. Right. Lusty, physically uh, robust, shall we say, uh, women who obviously enjoyed. Well, that was Camilla's. Yes, Camilla loved. Famous loved... question to Diana, right? Yes. Do you do you ride with the hounds? Right. right. Um, and of course, she was asking that question because she wanted to see when she'd be able to meet with Charles. And clearly, Diana wasn't going to be around when he was hunting. So that was a very good thing for her to do mm. with Charles. You say in the book about, I think it was actually about the Four Seasons lunch, how, and you said the word literally, so I, I that people who be, reach a certain fame, their heads literally <laughs> get bigger. And you were speaking about this with Diana and then Hillary Clinton. And then I like... I read the sentence again because I thought that uh, is that was that just a metaphor of something, or I couldn't tell if you were being. I was being sort of semi facetious, but yeah, because you wrote literal. I know, so I know. I was well, like, you, huh. know, uh, you know, it's a really strange thing about celebrities. Maybe, maybe it's one of the things that makes them camera charismatic. Yeah, that I do. Fan- I mean, Jackie Onassis had a most enormous That's head. Right. Certainly, right. Nancy Reagan, huge. Right. You know, and they have small bodies. Very often, movie stars do too. Right. Maybe that's something to do with why they're movie stars. Who knows? It's my theory. It's a strange theory. I realize. No, I don't. I, 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 t- <laughs> I mean, I know. I took to it. What, what role do you think um, Diana's beauty? Play, you know, Diana is a pretty woman. I would say, uh, in a complimentary way, you're a, you're a pretty woman. Thank what you. is it? What is it? How does that from from a obviously a guy's perspective here? How does that change your career on a day-to-day basis? Well, I mean, I think, you know, looks can play into anybody's career, male or female, actually. It, at times it's helpful. At times it isn't. Yeah. You know, it's 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 helpful when you want to get first impressions done and get in the door. And it can be unhelpful if those uh, attentions become unwanted, as we've heard a lot about recently. Yeah. So it can be both good and bad. I mean, in the case of Diana, it's interesting, her looks changed so hugely over her life. And when, you know, when you compare how she looked when he first mar- met her and married her, she was a kind of slightly plump, sweet, 
uh, sort of country girl. Right, the who, red cheeks and everything. Yeah, I mean, she was yeah. not what you would call a stunning. Right. She had a lot of charm. But as she, her suffering made her beautiful because then she got slimmer and slimmer because of the bulimia. bulimia. And she also, her eyes just seemed to get so full of emotional connection and the skin was always beautiful, but she definitely aged. I think she got more and more beautiful as she got older, Yeah, actually. I guess my question is, what if if she were, and I don't know, I think this is probably a, change, a conversation to be had on just how we define beauty, but if she were not a beauty, if, if she weren't, as beautiful of a woman, it, does she in her later years? Does, do the press care less? I mean, well, the press would would care less. I mean, um, that's what, right. But at the same time, for instance, uh, I mean, Kate Middleton's a very beautiful woman, mm-hmm. and Meghan Markle's a very beautiful woman. But what really got the press uh, obsessed with Diana was the drama, suffering, and sort of. Uh, conflict of her life you know the fact that diana was battling the institution of royalty the fact that diana uh was willing to talk about her suffering don't forget i mean she defied the royal family i mean one of the things that's amazing about diana was how much she defied the royal family she really people don't defy the royal family and (laughs) part of that was because she had her own incredible pedigree herself i mean the spencer family um was a much older family than the royal family of Windsor. And so in a way, she was never that intimidated by uh, the Queen and Prince Philip in the way that, um, and royalty in general, in the way that, say, I'm sure Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton would be. Right. Because they're they're middle-class girls, right? So Diana came from this really refined background, actually. And yet she had this extraordinary touch with everyday people. So she really was the people's princess. You know, she, she was always on the side of the underdog. And she had an extraordinary ability, even from a very young age, to connect with uh, people who were ill, old, alone. It's almost like she had this radar for someone in a room who was suffering or was lonely or was left out. Yeah. And she would go like a you know, beeline for that person and, and start to make them feel different and comfortable. And I saw how she did that, that she had this extraordinary empathetic gifts that mm. were much more than just simply being somebody with a good touch. You know, right. she she really was, she would listen in, in a really engaged way to people's mm. problems and somehow kind of take them onto herself. She had a tremendous gifts for that. You say that uh, you think she would have really, I don't know if happy was the word, but she wouldn't have been mad at how it came out about Murdoch and News of the World and the phone tapping. I think that Diana was being phone tapped herself. It's interesting. Right. She was so obsessed with being spied on but for a reason, I mean, I yeah, she yeah. was. But I mean, she also kept talking about how she heard a click, click, click on the line when she was talking to people. It only occurred to me after I wrote my book because I went deeply into the question of the wiretapping because she believed that she heard it was phone tapped, obsessively believed it, and she believed that the royal family were tapping her phone. I now think she was probably phone tapped by the news of the world. That's probably what she was being phone tapped by was the press, and they surely were tapping her phone because you know those those tapes that came out, the conversation that she had with. Uh, uh, her lover at the time, that the, the Squidgy Gate tapes, the famous tapes in which she was talking to her lover at when she was at Sandringham uh, over one Christmas with the royal family, where she talked about how unhappy she was with her then lover, um, uh, uh, James Wilby. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there was a cock and bull story about how some ham, the ham radio, radio, a radio. Yeah. Ham. It's like, why did any of us believe that? Right. Nonsense? And paid 6,000 pounds yeah. for his. So quite obviously, he was, he was obviously a cutout for the tabs. Incredible. Right? He was a cutout. He was obviously hired, you know, by one of the Murdoch press. I mean, I'm convinced now. But we all bought, I mean, you bought that at the time, right? Well, I, I, I wasn't able to disprove it. I was very suspicious. I mean, there's a whole chapter on it in my book. No, yeah, that's what I was referring uh, to. But we never discovered who actually paid those radio hams. And right. they were quite obviously, they were cutouts for the tabloids. Right. What is, uh, from, in, uh, uh, I think, more of an American point of view, have the people involved in that phone hacking scandal, if you, uh, have they, not including Murdoch and some of his real right-hand people, because that, I understand how they, some of them really got away with it, but someone like uh, Pierce Morgan, mm -hmm. who seems... It's. I think it's. It's like Chris Christie and Bridgegate. It's hard to to buy that he was not mm -hmm. aware of this in some capacity, but it seems like he never really got much of a slap on the wrist. Well, there were a lot of scapegoats in that story, and frankly, uh, you know, a lot of people have gone to prison or been pursued by the law, who in a way were the sort of the scapegoat were the smaller people, if you like. Um, because in a sense, what, what, what Murdoch was willing to do was just sort of turn over all his journalists. I mean, by closing down the news of the world and then allowing basically Scotland Yard to just go through everybody's, uh, computers. Right. They, a lot of journalists got prosecuted who have no money and spent all of their savings and, you know, had to remortgage their homes and all the rest of it to pay their legal battles when all they were doing was, was following what they were told to do. By what is, what an awful, I mean, that's. Awful. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely awful. But there you go. That's what happens when one side is powerful and the other side isn't. And and would not, I'm not trying to, but would, so would Pierce Morgan as the editor be on the side of? Well, Pierce Morgan, don't forget, he was not the editor at that time. Uh, he was not the editor of the paper that, that started the phone hacking. The, um, the But he was editor while there was phone yeah, hacking. Yeah, he was, he was editor. I mean, you know, it's never been proven how much he knew any more than it was proven how much Rebecca Brooks knew. And she was thought to have been about to go to prison, but she did not go to prison. Right. The paper folded instead. So right. you can make your own conclusions there. Oh, I will. <laughs> I drew my own conclusions in our Diana episode, but I was compelled to ask Morton why the conspiracy theories about her death. Not having yet realized it was a death caused by a drunk driver, paparazzi making the situation worse, and Diana not wearing a seatbelt. One of the parts that I really took away from your book uh, was when you wrote in uh, towards the end, you know, quote, we need conspiracy theories to somehow rationalize, make ordered or bearable that which is uh, choice and uh, inexplicable. I just thought that was such a great way of, of putting it. Uh, in the end, is there, I feel like it's, it's probably too convol convoluted, but uh, who's, who's to blame in, in this tragedy of her death that night? Well, there are so many um, different avenues into this into that yeah. terrible night. Right. I mean, you could say, well, Mohammed Fayed made the final decision to send them back from the Ritz Hotel to uh, Dodi's apartment. Mm -hmm. So he, he he shoulders the blame. Mm -hmm. You could argue that the Fayed generally uh, they they had were were uh, looking after Diana. They had her under uh, in their care, and within three three or four weeks. 
she was dead. Uh, you could argue that Diana herself, by the fact that she didn't want a Scotland Yard bodyguard with her and uh, relinquished any kind of protection, she had, was an architecture, architect of her own misfortune. You could also, also argue that Diana herself should have put one of uh, a seatbelt, in which case she'd have walked away and still be alive today and be the glamorous royal grandma, mm-hmm. as it were, or grandma. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you could argue, and many people have done, that uh, Prince Charles was to blame for marrying her in the first place on the false pretext. And his first reaction to her death was, they will blame me. And so there's, a, a, there's all kinds of avenues into, into this tragedy. Uh, but it is what it is. So Diana had an amazing sense of humor. And on that note, I thought since Tina Brown is kind of a big deal, not just an author and a world-renowned editor, but also an OBE, which is pretty close to getting knighted, it stands for Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, I thought we'd end this reaction episode with a little bit of fun. I think this would be my last question here. What's the... What's the coolest thing Tina Brown has done? The coolest? Coolest. Like when it's all said and done, I'm a 30 I'm a 31-year-old guy who do- makes documentaries and a podcast. What what here would you say like it's just going to blow my mind? And I've read your books. Oh, I hate to be boring, but my coolest thing is having my two fabulous cool no, 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 children. No, no, way are we getting no way <laughs> yes, is that. Yes, it is. No. I'm proud of that. No, that's why that was my that was the reason I said 31 oh. years. I was like I don't okay. want one of those so, like otherwise I'd be sorry. like, "Oh, yes." I'm sing. sorry, sorry, sorry. No, yeah. that is deeply boring. Yeah, yeah. 31 years old, the coolest thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm very, very proud of what I'm doing now. I have got to be honest. No, that's still. I'll, I'm going to talk up uh, women in the world like it's my job. I'm going to preface it. I, I don't get me wrong. I'm being sincere. No, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. But I'm not just saying it because I'm doing it. I just happen to find it uh, very cool because I think we're really ahead of the curve. I think we did stuff, you know, ahead of the curve. I think we've. All, I've always done stuff that's ahead of the curve. Actually. No, I mean that's proven. Okay, yeah. so one of the coolest things I've done, I think, uh, turning around the New Yorker was a very cool thing to do. I mean, I think. I think that coming to America at the age of, you know, just out of my 30s, out of my 20s, what am I talking about, when I took over Vanity Fair, taking over as a Brit who knew nothing about America and turning around this huge magazine, you know, uh, was a cool thing to do. Yeah, it was. Very. Karaoke with someone that we wouldn't expect? Oh, that kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant about my life and career. What no, is the no. Coolest thing like I've a nugget done? in time. Oh, a, a one hour of like, yeah, Bono oh God, was well, hitting make, on me or something. Why don't you make it clearer what yeah, you Yeah, yeah, that's my fault. That's my uh, fault. Sorry. I think it was very cool when Mick Jagger crashed a party I gave. That was cool. There, that's all I was looking for. Why did you say so? Because I don't know. I'm, I'm not it. Tina Brown. Okay. We're not all Tina all Brown. Right. Tina Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to our incredible team here at Cadence 13 and Seven Bucks Productions, our executive producers, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz. Big thanks to Andrew Morton, whose book, Diana, Her True Story, In Her Own Words, was re-released in the summer of 2017 with new material. His book, Wallace in Love, about the Duchess of Windsor and the Duke of Windsor, it's currently out. He wanted me to let you know that you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Morton UK. Tina Brown didn't ask for anything, but she has a new book, 
the Vanity Fair Diaries 1983 to 1992, which I have now said three times. It's currently out. It's named one of the best books of 2017 by Time, People, Amazon.com, The Guardian, Paste Magazine, never heard of it, The Economist, Entertainment Weekly, and Vogue. It's either a really good book or she knows a lot of people. I read it. I liked it. You can follow her at Tina Brown LM. Next week, our last reaction episode. This time, it's an incredible interview I have with Dr. Barbara Van Dalen. We talk about mental health and her groundbreaking work. She's been honored by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world and honored by the Chief of Staff of the United States Army as an outstanding civilian who has made significant voluntary contributions to our military and the United States Army. That's next week. Hey everyone, this is Andrew Jenks. And on Sunday, April 8th at the Abrams Arts Center Playhouse Theater on Grand Street in New York City, I'll be doing a special live podcast episode. It'll be a combination of photos and videos along with one of the episodes from the first season. I've been preparing for this, really looking forward to it, working hard on doing it live. You can get tickets uh, right now. They're on sale. I made the website easier because it was a very complicated website. You go to tinyurl.com backslash Jenks Live Pod. Again, it's Sunday, April 8th in New York, New York. Live podcast of what really happened. tinyurl.com backslash Jenks Live Pod.